I'm going to start again in John chapter 14. We've been teaching on the name of Jesus for uh, some time. And uh, we're using uh, certain scriptures, uh, four different uh, places in the, the uh, 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John's gospel. While you're turning there, let me remind you that this is John writing at the end of his life, uh, some 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. All the other books of the Bible have been, uh, all the books of the letters of the New Testament uh, that make up the letters to the church that make up the New Testament, excuse me, have been written. He knows what's there. He knows what the other gospel writers have, have uh, written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he kind of ties up loose ends toward the end of his life. John is in his 90s and he's seen the church. He's seen uh, Jerusalem destroyed, the temple uh, taken down, not one stone left upon another. And so he writes to, to us some things that the other gospel writers do not give us an account of, an eyewitness account and uh, and these 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters uh, are um, take place the last night that Jesus was with his disciples at what we know of as the Last Supper. John goes into very little detail about the, the mechanics of the Last Supper, but he goes into a lot of detail about what Jesus said at, at that time. And, uh, and the, the theme, if you will, uh, for the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John uh, is very simply because I go unto my Father. He's telling them certain things, revealing certain truths to them because of the sacrifice that he's going to make on the cross. Uh, his betrayal is going to take place in just a matter of a couple of hours from the times that he's, uh, he says these things. And because he's going to the Father, because he's going to make a place of salvation, redemption for you and me, he identifies certain things that will belong to us in that new place with God because we're in Christ. So if you'll start reading with me in uh, chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, he's talking about salvation. He's not talking about some special place of faith. I think so often we read things and we take for granted that, yeah, we're saved, but there are some people, they've got something extra. Well, nobody's got anything extra. Everybody's got the same thing in salvation. Now, you may be called to a different thing that I'm called to, and therefore you may be equipped in a different way that I'm equipped. But we've all got the same thing in salvation. And that's what he's talking about. Jesus is not talking about, I'm going to the Father to make a special place for you apostles. He's saying, I'm going to the Father to make a special place for mankind, for redemption. So when he says, he that believeth on me, he's talking about becoming saved. He that believeth on me, or believeth on my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. First thing Jesus says to them about this new place with the Father is, because you're saved, you'll do the same things that I do. Well, my question, if I'm one of the 11 that are left, Judas is already gone to betray Jesus from, uh, from the, the place where they're having the Last Supper. My question would, would be, well, how in the world are we going to do that? How would a spiritually dead person comprehend being able to do the same works as Jesus? And Jesus must have known that that would be their question. Because he goes on to say in verse 13, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name. Now, this word ask does not mean request. There are different words that are translated ask in the New Testament. Uh, one does mean request. We'll see one of those here in chapter 16 in just a moment. But this one means to call for, require, or demand. Whatsoever you shall call for or require or demand in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice Jesus said the, the criteria or the condition is that whatever work I do, in my name must glorify the Father. 
Whatsoever you call for, require, or demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you shall call for, require, or demand anything in my name, I will do it. Now, it seems to me that the church world has the idea that there's this real slim, skinny slice of life that God wants you to be involved in his work, and outside of that, you're on, on your own. But Jesus talks about things in the extreme. Jesus said, if you ask for, call for, require anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, as we've said before, and, and forgive me if I've pounded on this enough to where you're tired of hearing it, but I want to keep pounding till we get it. And that is, so many times when you say things like this, like, for example, this word means call for, require, demand, people think that that, that uh, uh, implies some kind of arrogant attitude or, or wrong attitude toward God. It doesn't mean that at all. It's a legal term. For example, when you write a check, you're placing a demand on your bank. You've got a contract with your bank in your checking account to, to wit, you deposit money in the account and they honor the checks that are within the, the amount that you've deposited or have on, on account in the bank. It's a simple demand. It has nothing to do with attitude. You don't have to be mad or happy either one for your checks to be honored by the bank. Doesn't have anything to do with that. Jesus is saying, these are things that belong to you because you have new rights through the place that I'm making for you because I go unto my Father. You're going to have certain rights. A part of your inheritance as a child of God is that whatever you call for, require, or demand in my name, that's what I'll do. If you call for, require, or demand anything in my name, I'll do it. That sounds pretty broad to me. Notice chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus says the same thing in a different way. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. He's talking about relationship and walking according to the word. Abiding in him is relationship, being in Christ. The word abiding in you means living or walking by faith. Not living according to the way you want to. It doesn't work that way. And and the modern day church is a perfect example or proof of that. So much of the church world has no concept of this as a reality in their lives because they don't walk according to the word they walk according to what this pastor says or that preacher says or this theologian teaches or whatever the case might be but jesus said the criteria is if you abide in me relationship and my words abide in you walk according to the word walk by faith we walk by faith and not by sight paul said then here's the result you shall call for require demand what you will not the few small things that God wills for you. Outside of that, you're on your own. No, you'll call for, require, demand what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein or in this manner, verse 8, in this manner is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Notice this belongs to every child of God. This belongs to every child of God. He's not talking about some special select group of people that have some special power or some special place of holiness that the rest of us can't attain to. He's saying this belongs to every believer. He's talking about rights and privileges as a part of your inheritance. I don't know if if you realize this, folks, but even from the couple of verses we've looked at already, what you say so goes in your life. What you say goes. In your life. You decide. That's what Jesus is saying. Is a part of this new place in the Father. Notice in chapter 15 verse 16. 
He's talking about the same thing. He said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Now, what fruit is he talking about? We know what fruit he was talking about in verse 7 and 8. What's he talking about here? I've ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand in my, of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So he's got to be talking about the same fruit. Now, if Jesus says the same thing over and over again, don't you think he's trying to make a point? I mean, if it was unimportant, why wouldn't he just say it once, pass over it, and move on to something that was important? Time is running out. The Romans are on the way to get him. Notice chapter 16, verse 23. And in that day, talking about the day following the resurrection, the day, the church age, the day you and I live in, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Now, you may remember that I said that there's a, a, another word that's used for ask in the New Testament. This one means request. Jesus is saying in that day, in the church age, you won't make requests of me. One translation says you'll ask me no more questions. But, verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask, this is the word call for, require, demand. Whatsoever you call for, require, demand, of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto, meaning up till now, have you called for, required, or demanded nothing in my name? Call for, require, and demand that you shall receive that your joy may be full. I can't get away from the fact that God is, that Jesus keeps saying, God wants you to be fulfilled in this stuff. He wants your words, those things that you call for, those things that you require, those things that you demand because of your place with God in Christ. He wants your life to be full. He wants the Father to be glorified. He wants supernatural things to take place in your life. He wants your life to be a supernatural adventure. And he wants everything that you do in your life, in his name, to bring fullness of joy to your life. Is there any other conclusion you can draw from this? The only other thing that the church world can do is say, well, Jesus just must have meant something else or he must have been talking to somebody else because this is not the kind of life that most of the church world, most Christians live. Is it? Not in my experience. He goes on to say in verse 26, at that day, talking about our day, the day following the resurrection, you shall call for, require, and demand in my name. I say not unto you that I will pray. This is the word meaning request. That's translated ask in verse 23. I say not that I will pray or ask the father for you. For the father himself loveth you. For because you have, because you have loved me. And have believed that I came out from God. In other words he's talking about the special place. That he's going to make for us. That place we call salvation. Casually call salvation. That redemptive abiding place in God. Through Jesus. Through his sacrifice. Through his resurrection. He's saying that gives you the same rights with the Father as I have now. You know what Jesus said in chapter 14, beginning in the first verse? He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said, uh, in my Father's house are many mansions. That word mansions means abiding places. It does not mean houses. In my Father's place are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Most of the church world, most Christians think that Jesus who the Bible says created the earth in six days, has been spending 2,000 plus years in heaven building houses with hammers and nails. And as soon as he gets that work finished, he's going to come back for us. And that has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus has not gone back into the carpenter business. He's not building houses. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Notice what he says in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, not where I'm going. That where I am, there you may be also. What place is Jesus in? He's in a place where he's one with the Father. In my Father's house are many mansions. He's talking about a place where you're one with the Father. He's talking about the new birth. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the redemptive work that he's going to accomplish on the cross so that you can be just as one with the Father as Jesus was one with the Father here on the earth. And that's why he goes on to say, because I'm going to my Father, whatever you call for, require in my name, demand in my name, I will do it. Whatever you call for, require, demand of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. That's why he says it four times. Well, really more than four, but four specific places in Scripture in these three chapters. Now, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want to build a little bit on some things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I just can't get away from it. I don't think it's going to be a repetition of much, but nevertheless, it might be a little bit overlap. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 tells us the story of creation. On the sixth day of creation, God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that create that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now notice in verse 26 it says that God's plan was to make man in his image after his likeness For one purpose, and that is so that he could have dominion or authority here in the earth. Dominion means authority, doesn't it? Control, literally. I know some people are uncomfortable with the way that, uh, that this is said, but it's absolutely the truth. God made Adam to be the God of this world. God made Adam to be the God of this world. Now, let me point your attention, and I think I'm not sure if I mentioned this before or not. But notice in verse 26 that God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. The word likeness means an exact duplication in kind. An exact duplication in kind. An exact duplication in kind. God made man, God made you as close to himself as he could possibly make it. How close was God able to get to himself? As close as you can. It's not like anybody could have done a better job. God made man an exact duplication of himself. After his kind means to operate the same way. To be of the same character. To be of the same nature. And to operate in the same way. Now what does Genesis 1 tell us about how God operated. Or how God exercised dominion. If man is an exact duplication in kind of God. And his, his purpose on the earth. Is to exercise dominion or authority here in the earth. Then we would have to look for God. In the exercise of his authority. To know how man should exercise his. Does that make sense? How do we see from the Genesis chapter 1 that God exercised his authority on the earth? It says 10 times in this chapter, and God said. And God said. 
And God said two of those ten times is in verse 28 and 29 where God identifies, God speaks to man and tells him what his purpose is and what belongs to him. And God said. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, I think since we know that, uh, that the creation was uh, in six days, we don't know what time of day on the sixth day God made Adam. We don't know how long he talked to him and said the things that are recorded in verse 28 and 29 about be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And I've given you all the, the trees and everything that's here to be under your dominion and so forth. But I can't help but believe that God would have told him more than what's recorded here. But since the Bible is an accurate picture of what transpired, what are we to take away from Genesis chapter 1? God had to reveal to Adam how he operated, how he created the earth. Now, if you were Adam, if you were the first person created, God formed you from the dust of the earth with his hands and then breathed into you the breath of life and all of a sudden you're alive and you're in in this place that has every provision, every good thing that possibly exists or could exist. There's nothing to hurt you. There's nothing to harm you. And you have the intellect. I believe Adam had 100% use of his brain. The Bible says that uh, man uses about 10%. I think that's high in some cases. But why in the world would God give you a brain that could operate at 100% capacity and we only use 10%? God's not a waster in anything. I believe Adam had 100% use of his brain. Now, with the mental capacity that Adam must have had, Adam named the animals. He didn't stop and say to God, what is this long neck thing going to be called? He came up with the names for the animals. Adam had to have some kind of intellect that that far outstrips anything that we could comprehend. If you were Adam and you had the kind of intellect that we can only imagine, what would you want to know from your creator? Besides everything. I'd want to know, how did I get here? I'd want to know, who am I? I'd want to know, who are you? I'd want to know, how did everything else get here? I would want to know everything. I personally believe my personal opinion i believe those walks with god in the cool of the day god had to space it out because adam is trying to get every bit of information he could possibly get i'd want to know everything well what does the bible tell us about what adam must have learned that god exercised his authority by words that's the takeaway from genesis chapter one outside of god making man an exact duplication in his uh, of his own kind that's the takeaway. The takeaway is God said. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, by, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that everything that was made was not made of things that do appear. In other words, they weren't made of seen or physical things. The physical realm was not made from physical things or resources. The physical realm was made from unseen things. What unseen things? God's word. Therefore, God's word has to have dominion over the physical realm. If the the physical realm was greater than God's word, then God's word couldn't have created it. Right? So what do we know about Adam and the dominion that he was given over the earth? If he's operating after God's kind or in the same manner that God operates, he has to be exercising his authority through words. Now, God speaks to him and tells him what uh, what to do and what not to do. Chapter 2 Verse 
16 or verse 15 we'll start in verse 15 and the Lord God took the took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it those um, those words literally mean to work and and guard it and the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden thou shalt may, thou mayest freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die now God tells man very clearly what the one condition and, and this is the only thing that we have record of that God said don't do he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and he said now don't eat of that tree because in the day you eat thereof you shall surely die well we know the end of the story Adam eats of the tree Eve sees the tree she looks on the tree and sees that it's good for food well God made it and everything he made was very good of course it's going to be good for food but that doesn't mean everything that's good is something you should do that doesn't mean everything that looks good is something you should partake of. Well, I wish our young people could get a hold of that truth. So, Adam disobeys God and they fall. They die that day. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, he doesn't die physically. Adam doesn't die physically for 930 years after he was created. We don't know how long he was created and was in the garden before he ate of the tree that he was commanded not to. We don't know if that was a short time. We don't know if that was a long time. Could have been. Could have been generations. The only thing that the Bible really tells us is that after Cain and Abel came along, God made Seth, or they had the Seth as their son, and Seth became the lineage that the Bible gives us record of. It doesn't tell us nobody else was here on the earth. See, a lot of people have questions about where Cain get his wife. Because after he killed Abel and he ran off into the, into the regions, you know, and had to escape, Cain said, uh, I'm going to be marked and everybody's going to want to kill me. Well, who's everybody? There had to be other people around. He went to another city. Well, who would build a city if it's just Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel? So there had to be other people around. There could have been generations of people. And the, and the interesting thing for me to think about is that if there were generations of people already on the earth, when Adam fell, everybody fell at the same instant. Because Adam operated on behalf of all of mankind. Now, put yourself in Adam's position. You were once spiritually dead, and assuming you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, most of us have, I'm sure, then you know what it's like to be both spiritually dead and spiritually alive. You went from the, good, from the bad side to the good side, from the dark side to the light. But what would it be like to go from the light to the dark? Man, your whole world would have just turned upside down. Your whole world would have ended in one respect. And, re and remember the curse that God placed upon both man and the earth? He said, uh, where is it? The end of chapter 3, I think it is. Unto Adam, he said, verse 17. This is chapter 3, verse 17. Unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of your wife, is all Eve's fault, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded thee. Uh, I, I, I meant for that to be funny, but I, I know that so many people take that serious. Adam's the one who had authority. He could have sent the devil packing before anything ever happened. And you know, there is no record. that We do know that God said to dress and keep the garden. That means to work it and to guard it, protect it, and so forth. So there had to be an enemy here. God knew that Satan had already been cast into the earth. Adam may not have known until he got around to saying, well, what am I supposed to protect it against? That had to be part of the conversation somewhere along the way. 
There is no record that God said, now you're going to have an enemy here. There is an enemy that's out there. And don't worry, he's always going to be here. You can't do anything about him. He has to stay here forever. God never says that. We never have any record of that. Because of that, it's entirely possible. I'm not saying it has to be this way. But it's entirely possible that the first time Adam ever saw Satan, the first time he ever met him, when he took upon himself the form of the serpent, Adam could have said, you know, I don't like you being here. Be gone from the earth and never return. I have authority here. Take off. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? Well, it would have been for him. But again, that's natural thinking. We think that the Garden of Eden was the ideal place for us to be. Folks, I've got news for you. The Bible says that there was a mystery that was hid from the ages that's even better than being in the Garden of Eden. And that's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The condition that you are in because of Jesus' sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection is a better place than what Adam had in the Garden of Eden before he fell. Now, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we don't understand what we've been restored to. But when we do, then it becomes clear. So he says, because, says to Adam, because you hearkened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and shalt, thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return. Now notice the curse. The curse is, in sorrow, the ground shall, or in sorrow you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. In other words, there's going to be pain, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be trouble, hard times, hardship, because of spiritual death, because of the curse that's upon the earth. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. What are those? Those didn't exist before. Now, I want you to realize, folks, God didn't create thorns. The Bible says at the end of the sixth day, God saw that everything he made was very good and he rested. He, one translation says he made an end of everything he ever made. So where do the thorns and thistles come from? Thorns and thistles are the product of the law of sin and death upon the earth. It's not the creation of God. Where did sickness come from? Sickness was not created in the first six days. What is sickness? Sickness is the result of the law of sin and death in the earth. It's the natural byproduct of Satan now being the God of this world. So many times the church world or Christians have the idea that God brought sickness upon them. Well, if you brought sickness upon them, where did he get it? The Bible tells us there's none in heaven. There's nothing that can harm or hurt anybody in heaven. And there was nothing that could harm or hurt anybody on the earth in the way that God made it. So where did sickness come from? Sickness was a perversion of the life of God, the law of the spirit of life that was here on the earth when Adam fell and Satan took charge. In other words, sickness, poverty, depression, and so forth, all those things are a byproduct of Satan's dominion. I know that sounds simplistic, but if it ever sinks in, we'll stop and we'll say, wait a minute, that means we don't have to put up with this. So he says, from the sweat of your brow, the earth is going to bring forth. In other words, the earth is going to only produce for you now, Adam, because of the curse. The earth will only produce for you now through physical work. Well, how did it produce for him before? The only thing we have any record of whatsoever 
of God's example to Adam in the exercise of dominion are the words of his mouth. That's it. Now, that's not to say that Adam didn't plant seed. That's not to say that, that he didn't go out and plant corn when it was corn planting time or whatever the case might be. Certainly, that might have been the case. It's not like, you know, Adam was um, uh, on the sixth day God created man and then made him a hammock. And said, this is it. This is your place to lay down for the rest of your days. Oh, and by the way, I'll give you a wife. She can bring you grapes. So certainly there was work that Adam, Adam had to do, but it wasn't, it wasn't the physical effort. It wasn't the physical exertion that brought about the results. It was the fruit of his mouth. The words of his mouth was the exercise and the only exercise of dominion that we have any record of whatsoever. Now, when Adam falls, everything, his whole world goes dark. Now, stop and think about it from this point. Where, up until that point in time, up until the fall, where did Adam get his information? only source of information there was was God, right? What about the physical world? Did Adam get information from the physical realm? Well, anything that he got information from in the physical realm was perfect. It was without sin. It was without the taint or the spot of sin. So it would have only produced information that was in line with or agreed with whatever God had already told him, right? What happens when he falls? Now, all of a sudden... His source of information has ended. He's spiritually dead. He's cut off. He's separated from God. There's no source of information from God from that point. There's no spiritual connection that he has with his father. That breath of living, uh, that living breath that, that God breathed into him that made him a living soul. Caused him to be a spirit being. Now that spirit being is separated from God. There's no source of information. His wireless connection has ended. So where is he going to get his information? <clears throat> Only source of information he's got is the physical realm. Only source of information he's got is what the earth provides for him. Or we could say it this way. The only source of information he has access to is that which comes to his five physical senses. And folks, I would submit to you that man's been operating on that source of information ever since. Now, we looked at this before, but I want to draw your attention back to it again. I want to turn to James chapter 3. And I want to show you something about how this works related to man's authority. James is talking to the church. James is a pastor of the church. He's the only pastor that we have record of that writes to the church in the New Testament. And as such, James talks about some real, real practical stuff. Because he's not like Peter and Paul and some of these other guys that get to come in and teach for a while and then leave town. He's the guy that has to stay there with people through the daily activities and through their life problems and so forth and so on. And so he sees and talks about in a whole lot different, whole different way, a lot more so than Peter or Paul or any other New Testament writers about the difference between what somebody claims to be and how they live. It's not new. God said in the Old Testament, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Well, that's a lot of what James writes to as far as Christians are concerned. And I think for that reason, the book of James is one of the most important ones that we have because people haven't changed. So notice what James says. James starts off in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. A lot of people want to be the ones to teach others. Be careful about that. You're going to have to answer for your teaching. You better make sure it's right. 
Verse 2, for in many things we offend all. The word offend, offend from the Greek means stumble. He's not talking about ticking people off. He's talking about making mistakes. He's talking about errors. He said, for in many things we offend all. Now, the errors he's talking about, the stumbling he's talking about, has to do with the teaching that he refers to in verse 1 that so many people want to take unto themselves. You better make sure what you're telling somebody is right. For in many things we, we offend all or we stumble. If any man stumble not in word, please notice this. If any man stumble not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Please notice that James is saying the key to a perfect Christian life is to watch your words. You control your tongue. You can control your Christian life. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths, verse 3, that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. In other words, he's saying your tongue is like the bit of the horse's mouth. You control the direction of your tongue. You control the words of your mouth. You can control your body. You can control the direction of your life. Your tongue is like the rudder of a ship. No matter how big the ship is, that little member, that little rudder, turns it around. In the same way, your tongue can turn around the course of your life. Your tongue establishes and can turn around the course of your life. Notice he says in verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Let me read this to you from another translation. See if I can find it here real quick. Uh, this is from uh, BBE, the BBE translation. It says, And the tongue is a fire. It is the power of evil placed in our bodies, making all the body unclean, putting the wheel of life on fire and getting its fire from hell. Let me ask you a question. When did the tongue become that? It's not the way God made it. When did the tongue become that? The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, as the other translation says, the power of evil in our bodies. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, how is it that something that God made that was good and perfect had no trace of sin became the power of evil in our bodies and in this life? That was the law of sin and death taking effect. Notice the next thing that it says here. Notice the next verse, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 9. Therefore, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. In other words, James is saying, here's the problem with people and their lack of understanding about how things work. Your tongue is not meant for blessings and cursings. James is giving us an example, a perfect example of, the knowledge of, the, of what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil brought to mankind. In other words, Adam lost control of his tongue when he fell. Spiritual death meant that Adam lost control of his tongue. And here's what that means. That means now no longer is his spirit the source of information. No longer is his knowledge of this world and the knowledge of life and whatever other knowledge he gains. No longer does it come from God. Now his knowledge comes from his five physical senses. So what does his mouth 
do. It stops speaking knowledge that he gained from God and starts speaking according to his five physical senses. Starts speaking according to what he sees and hears and feels and so forth. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 12. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three, three witnesses, let every word be established. Look to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus talks about the same thing. Jesus cast the devil out of somebody and then uh, the Pharisees accuse him of casting out the devils by the power of the devil. And Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Now, we want to skip down to, um, let me start reading in verse 34. I don't want to read the whole thing for the sake of time. But let's start in verse 34 down through verse 37. O generation of vipers, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Jesus was always real rough with religious people. God hates religion, folks. Christianity is not religion. Christianity is about a relationship. Jesus said so. I go to prepare a place for you. It's about a relationship. It's about being one with the Father. It's about union with God. It is not about religion. It's not about rules. It's not about do's and don'ts. So Jesus said to people that were all about do's and don'ts, more don'ts than do's, O generation of vipers, how can you being evil, evil means literally unholy or unrighteous, spiritually dead. How can you being evil speak good things? Now stop right there and think about what Jesus is asking. How is an unrighteous person going to speak good things? He's going to tell us, well, maybe I ought to read a little bit further. The rest of the verse, he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how can somebody who has an evil or an unrighteous or spiritually dead heart or spirit going to be able to speak good things? You can't. And that's what happened when Adam fell. Adam became spiritually dead. So whatever knowledge he had from his walks with God for however long those occurred, whatever information he had slowly began to drain away from him and be replaced by knowledge that he got from his five physical senses. For example... Maybe part of what God said on the earth uh, about Adam's operation and exercise of authority on the earth before the fall was, you're the guy in charge here. It's up to you to keep things in control. If things go wrong, don't call to me for it. You fix it. How do you fix it? Whatever you say is the way things are going to be. You'll exercise uh, authority in the earth the same way that I exercised authority on the earth to, to create it to begin with. And that is, your words govern this earth. But then Adam starts seeing things go contrary to what he said before. Now thorns and thistles appear. Now sickness comes on the scene. All things that that, uh, are contrary to the good and perfect way that God created the earth. So what does Adam do? Adam realizes my words don't work anymore the same way that they did. I don't have the same authority. I've transferred that authority to Satan. Though I'm sure he didn't know what he was doing when he ate of the apple or the, the fruit. I'm sure he didn't know the consequence or the the ramifications of what he was doing. But nevertheless, those things now are in place. And the knowledge that he once had that he gained from God has been replaced by his natural human physical experience. Which is where most of the church world lives. They've got the word that says one thing, but they've got their experience which says something else. So they're faced with the same dilemma that we all are. And that is, which one do we believe? Adam didn't have the consistency of the word. He didn't have anything else to go back to. Now his world is changing. 
And Jesus says, how can you, here's what an unrighteous person is like, how can you, being evil or unrighteous, spiritually dead, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, brings forth good things. In other words, good things can only come from a good spirit. Meaning a spirit that's alive unto God. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Spiritually dead people speak evil things. Now what's the evil that God's talking about? He's talking about things that are contrary to his word. Things that bring curses instead of blessings. We just read in James 3, what it was, verse 6 or 8, somewhere around there where it says uh, the, the tongue is uh, a world of iniquity. The other translation says the power of evil in this world or in our bodies. Well, that goes along with what Proverbs eighteen twenty one says. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Well, that wasn't the way it was when Adam was created. Death and life weren't in the power of the tongue then. Only life was in the power of the tongue. So the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that Adam was commanded not to eat thereof, the knowledge of good and evil must be the knowledge or the experience of both death and life as a product of your tongue. You know, uh, folks, I want you to understand something. You know how the Bible says in uh, well, several places, but one, for example, in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it and shall he not make it good? Has he spoken it and shall he not perform it or whatever, however it says? You know why God can't lie? Because every word he says comes to pass. If God were to lie, then the lie would become the truth. Now, I know that's not possible, so don't try to wrap your head around that too tight. But every word God says comes to pass. It's who he is. So whatever God said would be the truth. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. I want to pick up on that thought in just a minute when I finish this. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart, verse 35, brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say unto you, every idle word. The word idle means barren, unfruitful, or dead. It's not talking about casual words. It's talking about unfruitful words. It's talking about words of death. Every idle or unfruitful word that a man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words... Shalt thou be justified or made righteous. And by thy words thou shalt be condemned or made unrighteous. In other words, you're controlled by your words. Same way as in Adam's day. You're controlled by your words. First, Adam was controlled by his words before he fell. Those were words of blessings. Those were the words of God. His knowledge, his only source of knowledge was what God told him. So whatever he said was the result of what God had told him. Everything he said, therefore, was God's speaking. God's words. But after he fell, everything changed. Everything changed. Now he's got the power of life and death. Now, he's got, now his tongue has a choice to speak either curses or blessings. Same choice we have today. Now with Adam going dark, so to speak... He realizes that he's lost authority in the earth. Now it's up to Satan. Satan's in control. But what is Satan in control of? What is Satan in control of? You know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to me. 
The Bible says there was a thousand and, uh, well, roughly 1,500, specifically 1,556 years between Adam being created and Noah building the ark. Noah built the ark for 100 years, so the flood happened in 1656. The Bible is very specific about that and tells us the years that people lived up until that point in time. Now think about Adam living 930 years. Adam lived almost two-thirds of the time between his creation and the flood taking place. Now Methuselah lived up until the flood took place. Methuselah was 243 years old when Adam died. Methuselah was Noah's grandfather. So you've got a direct line between those three individuals, Adam, Methuselah, and Noah. Now, if you were Noah, and you knew that Methuselah, your granddaddy, had walked and talked with Adam for 240-something years, who would you want to talk to? I'm inclined, well, I know me, so I know what it would be like for me. I don't know what everybody's like. But I know what it would be like for me. If I was on the earth when Adam was on the earth, I'd want to know everything I could find out from him. Tell me about that stuff where you walked with God. Now, I don't want to hear about you falling. We know about that. But I want to hear about that time that you were walking with God. What was it like before everything messed up? What, were you, what was it like before everything went dark? I'd want to know every detail. I'd want to know everything. I'd want to spend every moment that I could finding out from the beginning how things were. Wouldn't you? Well, Noah didn't have that opportunity because Adam was already dead. But he did have access to somebody that had had that opportunity, which was Methuselah. Now, by the time that Noah comes on the scene, we don't know exactly where. We, it could have been the case when Noah was born uh, in 1056, 10,056 years after Adam was created, just 70-something years before uh, um, or after Adam died. No, what would that be? 126 years after Adam died. It's real close. The time frame there in there amazes me because by the time Noah comes on the scene, certainly by the time that he starts building the ark, God appears to him, speaks to him, and, and gives him instruction to build the ark. The earth is filled with wickedness. It takes Satan six, uh, 1,556 years, no more than 1,556 years for the, earth to be create, to, uh, for the earth to be covered and operating in such wickedness that God says, forget this, I want to start over. 1,556 years. Look how fast Satan messed things up. 1,556 years. I'm amazed and I get kind of tickled at some people with the book of Job. Because we see in the book of Job, why don't you turn back with me to Job chapter 1. I've been tempted to teach on the book of Job, but I don't want to. The reason I don't want to is because people get hung up on the wrong things. Most of the book of Job is people showing how foolish they were. Yet the modern day church looks at the book of Job as somehow it's got all the answers. Well, it's got a couple, and they're real easy to understand. Job chapter 1, there was a man, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and he, that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, perfect does not mean he knew everything. It means he was operating according to everything he knew. 
And they were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses in a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his son went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent, that's seven days in one week, I guess, and sent and called for the three sisters to eat and to drink with them. They've got this, this holiday thing done pretty good. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. He doesn't know, but he suspects something. So he must have known them. If he knew them to be people that wouldn't operate that way, he wouldn't have had any concern, right? Are you out there? Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. It's amazing to me how the church world takes simple statements, and they create the most illogical things. They create this scenario where God's in heaven, and the, the angels, some divine beings, come and stand before God, and Satan's in the middle of them. First of all, when did Satan get access to heaven? My Bible says that when he rebelled against God, God cast him out to the earth like lightning. Now, the door that God cast him out of, is that revolving? Was that just a part-time, you know, departure for Satan? Did God just say, I'm tired of you, get out of here, don't come back till tomorrow? It's ridiculous. Well, what does sons of God mean? Well, here's the part that the church world gives up on the, total, the whole picture and it affects every part of their lives. Who was made an exact likeness and duplication of God's kind? Man. So who do the sons of God have to be? There's nobody closer to God than man. It's got to be man. Now we know that these three friends of Job's friends, some friends, we know that these, these three church people They come, and they're worshipers of God. They have no clue who he is. They don't know how things work. They're not nearly as smart as they think they are. They're like the ones that James 3, 1 talks about. They're trying to be many masters, but they don't know what they're talking about. But they're worshipers of God. So where in the world would this be taking place, and who's it taking place with? It simply means there were those that gathered together to worship God, and Satan came with them. Now, folks, I can tell you from personal experience, I know for a fact the devil comes to church. Well, if the devil comes to church today, what makes us think that he doesn't come then? But people can imagine all these scenarios, these wild scenarios. Well, it must be that there was something that was happening in heaven. That's like somebody looking at the pyramids and saying, wow, those are big. It must have been aliens. <laughs> people come up with the stupidest ideas about things. The Bible means what it says. The sons of God mean men. By the way, 1 John chapter 3 says, what love God has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Why are we the sons of God? Are we the sons of God because we're saved? Well, yeah. But what about mankind in general? In one sense, all of mankind are sons of God because they were created in the exact likeness of God in his kind. An exact duplication of God. Doesn't mean they're spiritually alive. But mankind was created in God's image. 
So who are those sons of God? These are people. And Satan comes in the middle of them. And and the Lord says to Satan, I love this, God initiates the conversation. Tries to rub Satan's nose in something. And the Lord said to Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Isn't that where the Lord cast him out into? So he's exactly where God threw him. Right? And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil? God's bragging on Job. Then Satan answered, the Lord says, Does Job fear God for not? In other words, yeah, sure, it's easy for him to worship you when things are going good. What's he going to do when things go bad? Hast thou not, here's what Satan continues to say, verse 10, Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and all about that he has on every side? And hast thou not blessed his, the work of his hands and the substance is increased in the land? This is what God does for his people. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Okay, I'll make him sick and mess up his stuff. No. The Lord says, Behold. You know what the word behold means? It means to look upon or to see something that is. So God says to Satan, literally, you don't understand how things are. Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Then it tells us about scattering his sheep and his camels being stolen by, by Satan stirring up his enemies, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. And then it tells us about the wind that crushes the house and, and uh, um, uh, destroys the, uh, the, his sons and daughters where they're, they're feasting. And it tells us about lightning or fire from God, lightning that comes down and destroys part of his flocks. So it sounds like Satan's working the same way then that he works now. And the church has done a masterful job then and now blaming God for the stuff the devil does. So God says, behold, all that he has is in your power. Why doesn't Satan know that? Now, for me, and this is just for me, you decide for yourself or or don't even think about it. I don't care. You do what you want to with it. But for me, that says this has got to be before the flood. Because by the time the flood occurs, wickedness is controlling the earth in such a measure that God has to destroy the earth with a flood and start over. So Satan has certainly found out his authority and his power and the limits of his ability by then. Hasn't he? No question about it by the time the flood comes around. So when is this taking place? It's if Adam, if... uh, Excuse me, if God is providing Satan with information that he didn't have before about his authority, this has got to be immediately close to or there around the fall. Now, folks, you need to understand something. The devil's not nearly as smart as you give him credit for. How smart can you be to rebel against God? Look at your teenage kids and and ask that question. How smart are you to rebel against God? They think they're smart. But they don't know what they're doing, right? The devil was pretty much the same way. And to think that the devil was in on God's master plan is foolish. The devil did know, along with the angels, the devil did know when God made man. Psalm 8 says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? 
or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast given him dominion over all the works of your hands. In other words, the angel said, what is this thing called man? That you would give him authority, you would make him just like yourself. You have made him a little lower than the angels, King James says. That word angels in Psalm 8 is literally the word Elohim, that means God. You've made him as much like you as you can. Much more like you than the angels. You've made him as close to you as possible. What is man that you care so much about him? That you would invest so much of yourself in him? That you would give him authority over all the works of your hands? What is this thing called man? Which means before that point in time, whatever else existed couldn't have been man. Now we know that there was other stuff that existed. We see in uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 14 where, uh, where Satan Talks about what he's going to do. Here's when Satan rebels. He said, I will exalt my throne above the heavens. Which means he had a throne below the heavens. He said, I will be like the most high God. Which means he wasn't. Which means he was not made in God's likeness like man is. He was not an exact duplication in kind like man is. And folks, I got to tell you, that, in my opinion, is why the devil works so hard against man. He wants to be you. He wants to be as much like God as he can be, and he's not. So what does he do? He attacks attacks God's finest creation. Everything that that he does is designed to destroy you because God invested so much in you to make you the way you are. He's not your buddy. Whatever he's offering you and however good he says it's going to be, he is not working on your behalf. Ever. So Satan goes through these things. There's seven different things that Satan says, I will. I will exalt my throne above the heavens. I will be like the most high God. Another thing he says is I will be in the midst of the congregation. That congregation he's talking about is man. He's not talking about God. He's talking about man. He knows he can't be God. But he wants what man has which is authority. But even now, he doesn't have the same authority that man has because he's a rebel holder of that authority. He didn't come into the earth in a legal and a legitimate way by being born into the earth with a flesh and bone body. That's why he has to inhabit something else to have expression. And he hates it. He wants what you've got. He wants to be you. So if he can't be you, he wants to control you. Which is exactly the way he operates. So here's Adam, or I'm sorry, here's Job's situation where the devil finds out for the first time that we have any record of in Scripture, he finds out that he has authority over what, I, what Job has. He goes on further. It said, well, maybe we ought to keep reading here. Uh, verse 20 Then Job arose and rent. This is after his kids die and all of his stuff is taken away. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Here's how Job responds to tragedy. He worships God. Now, not because he has perfect knowledge, but he chooses to worship God. And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is he right? No. But that's his understanding. So what does the church do? The church quotes Job in his ignorance. Now, you remember I said that there are certain lessons in the book of Job? Job learned certain things. Number one, he learned that he had an enemy, and it wasn't God. 
Why didn't the modern day church learn what Job learned? Verse 22, in all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. That just simply means he didn't go beyond what he thought he knew. He's still operating according to to imperfect knowledge. But where is his knowledge coming from? If this is before the flood, which in my opinion has to be. If Satan's just finding out the limits of his authority that he took from Adam, then it's got to be before the flood. So what law is he operating under? What word of God is there? There's none. There was no word of God until God gave it to Moses. That's hundreds of years later. That's hundreds of years later than the flood. So what knowledge does he have? His five physical senses. His knowledge of God comes from only what he knows from this physical realm. Now, we can learn a few things about God from this physical realm, but it's not much. And most of it is subject to interpretation, and most people interpret it wrong. Job 2 continues, where Satan, God asked him the same thing. Another day when the sons of God came to present themselves, and Satan came also, the Lord said, where are you coming from? And Satan said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. Folks, that's the only place he's got. The devil's got one little track that he just keeps walking back and forth. Trying to distract you and speak to your mind all the way. And the Lord said, has thou considered my servant Job? A perfect man, none like him in the earth. One that fears God and eschews evil and still he holds fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Another translation says, even though you tried to get me to move against him, but it didn't work. We know that it wasn't God that moved against him. It was the devil that moved against him. The devil's the one that stole his stuff and killed his kids. And Satan answered and said, skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold. In other words, he says, look at the way things are. He is in your hand, but save his life. In other words, he's saying his body is in your hands, not his life. But his body is in your hands. In other words, the devil has a right to tempt tempt or to bring sickness to every one of us. The question is, what are we going to do when he does? says that that boils came upon job he scrapes himself with a pot shirt he sits down puts ashes on his head and and all this stuff verse 10 uh well we should back up again i guess to verse 8 and he took him a pot shirt to scrape himself with all and he sat down among the ashes then said his wife unto him dost thou still retain thine integrity curse god and die that's a good wife Why are you going to keep worshiping God? Just curse him and die. She can't be worried about the inheritance. There is none anymore. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did Job not sin with his lips. Please notice that. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Why is he not sinning with his lips? Because he's operating according to all the knowledge he has. What knowledge does he have? Good things happen and bad things happen. God must be behind all of it. Is his knowledge accurate? No. But God considers it perfect. He considers it 
to be the absence of sin or a lack of sin, doesn't consider it to be sin because it's all Job knows. God doesn't have a law that he can say, wait a minute, I said to you in Genesis chapter or whatever. Because there is no Genesis chapter or whatever. There is no law of God. Now Job sits there until his three friends show up. And they sit for seven days before they open their mouth. And the rest of the book of Job basically is his friends talking about how God does these things. You must be at fault. God's righteous. God does these things. You must be at fault. And Job sits there. And for the most part of the book of Job, he sits there and says, I haven't done anything. It's not my fault. Now, he doesn't accuse God. He just says, I didn't do anything. You guys are telling me I did wrong. I know I didn't do anything wrong. Finally, he gets to the point where he says, God must be wrong. God must be unrighteous. God must be unjust because I didn't do anything wrong. Then God shows up. That was the first point where Job sins. What's another lesson in the book of Job? Don't blame God. So God has a talk with, with Job. He says, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I commanded the sea to come no further and it stopped? If I was hungry, would I talk to you? If I was thirsty, would I come to you for, for the answer? You who think you know everything and you who are so righteous, answer me if you can. And the Bible says Job quaked. He shut down and finally says, oh, Lord, I've spoken things that I didn't know, things that were too great for me. There's another lesson that Job learned in the book of Job. Another lesson that the modern day church should take. Don't talk about things you don't know. As long as Job is quiet, he's okay. Even though his knowledge is not perfect, as long as he's quiet, he's okay. But when he starts to speak, And speaks against God and speaks of his own righteousness. That's when God shows up. And basically says, Job, you're an idiot. What do you think you know? Were you around when I created the earth? And so forth. Now the book of Job ends in a wonderful, wonderful way. Here's another lesson that we should learn from the book of Job. Chapter 42 God speaks against Job's friends, tells them you better ask Job to pray for you or else I'm going to be upset and my wrath is going to be poured out upon you. But chapter 42, verse 10, it says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all of his brethren and all of his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought. Now, please notice the translation is really lousy. The Lord didn't bring this. We know for a fact that Satan's the one that brought the, the evil upon him, not God. God just simply said to Satan twice, look at the way things are. Since you stole authority from Adam, all that he has is in your hands and even his flesh, just not his life. So the Lord blessed Job, verse 12. Bless the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she asses. He also had seven sons and three daughters and called the name of the first blah, blah, blah. And all the land, in all the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. Got rid of the ugly ones and got pretty ones. 
And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. And after this lived Job 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. Now, why in the world does the church walk around saying, well, I guess I'm like Job? Well, which part? I, I personally am like Job. This part. Where God gives you a double measure. God restores twice as much. So who does Job find out his enemy is? The devil. Who does Job find out is on his side? God. So why in the world does the church stand around saying, well, you know, the devil goes up into heaven and talks to God against you? Seriously? What is there to learn from the book of Job? Don't talk about things you don't know. Watch your words. Get on God's side and get the blessings. Why is the church so hard to figure that out? Why are they so hell-bent on saying that God brought all this stuff on Job when the Bible says clearly that he didn't do it? It says the devil did it. Now, folks, back to the original thought. God created man in his own image after his own likeness. An exact duplication in kind. An exact duplication in kind. He gave man the same exercise of authority that he operated with in the earth, and that was the words of his mouth. Job, uh, I'm sorry, not Job, forget Job. We're done with Job. Adam was a man under God's authority. Mankind was created as under God's authority. How is that authority exercised? Through the words that we speak. Finally, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. I I know we looked at this once before, but I want you to see it again. Matthew chapter 8. There's something about this story that I cannot get away from, and the Lord just keeps talking to me about that, so I'm going to keep talking to you. Not this morning, I don't mean. I'm I'm about out of time for this morning. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed, for I am a man under authority. Having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Skip down to verse 13. Jesus said unto the centurion, Go your way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now, how many times do we work on our faith? If you're around here, if you're interested in the word of God, you know that we talk about faith a lot. You know the Bible talks about faith a lot. And so people work and work and work and work. And I've seen people struggle year after year after year trying to make their faith work and, 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 and all this kind of stuff. Trying to build their faith, trying to exercise their faith. And look at the situation where Jesus said, this is the greatest faith I've found. Do you see the centurion trying to believe the right thing? Do you see the centurion aching and, and, and agonizing over believing in his heart and saying with his mouth and all this kind of stuff like so many Christians do nowadays when they're trying to receive from God? Notice what it was about the centurion that caused him to have what Jesus called the greatest faith that he found. He had an understanding of authority. And Jesus did not say, this guy understands authority better than anybody I've ever seen. Jesus called it faith. Jesus called it faith. You know why I have a hard time hearing people say that God operates in faith? Because faith 
implies that it's a purposeful believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. God doesn't do that. It goes back to what we said before. Everything God says comes to pass. Why? Because God's words carry power. God understands that whatever he says comes to pass. So he doesn't have to believe something in his heart. God is a spirit already. There is no heart for God. He is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a flesh. So the, his, what we might call the heart or the spirit, that's him. So there is no correlation or parallel to us believing in our heart, independent of our five physical senses, because God doesn't have five physical senses. It's just who he is. It's who we are on the inside, but we've got to press through the flesh, the veil of the flesh, to get to who we really are on the inside. So the idea that God exercises faith has always been a problem for me. He doesn't. Yet there is faith in everything that he does because it's just him. We know that God has faith. We know that there's a God kind of faith that he gives each and every one of his children a measure of. But it's not, it doesn't work the same way for him. And here's my point. This centurion is not struggling to believe something. This centurion is not struggling to say the right thing. He's a spiritually dead man that understands one thing. And that is authority is exercised through words. That's it. That's all he knows. That's all he needs to know. He says to Jesus, speak the word only. Why? Because authority is exercised through words. Obviously, Jesus couldn't heal the sick if he didn't have authority over sickness. The centurion knows about that, and that's why he comes to him or sends his servant to come to him. He never really even comes in person. So he knows that Jesus has power over sickness. He knows Jesus has authority over sickness. He knows that Jesus can lord it over sickness and heal the sick. So what does the centurion know that enables him to tap into that? He knows that authority is exercised in words. Jesus, all you got to do is say the word. All you've got to do is say the word. Now remember, everything God says comes to pass. God can't lie because whatever he says comes to pass. That's like in one place God said in the Old Testament, he said, who can curse whom God has blessed? It's impossible. You can't curse whom God has blessed because God has already blessed you. Therefore, the blessing is yours. Well, we could turn that around. Who can curse with sickness whom God has blessed with with healing? Who can curse with poverty whom God has blessed with prosperity? How is it the devil can do anything that overcomes the, the spoken word of God, which always has to be true? He can't. So how does he work? One and only one way, and that is he tries to influence your words. Because by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. By your words, there'll either be blessings. Or by your words, there'll either be curses. Not somebody else's words against you. So many times people teach on the book of Job, and they say, well, Job said the thing that I greatly feared. Job opened the door to the devil by fear. Please tell me. How it is that being afraid that somebody else is doing something opens the door of the devil for them. If that's the case, the door is open for many, many people in our church. Because I see the way some people take a casual attitude toward the word. They don't give the attention to the word that they should. I know they're not prepared for trouble when it comes and trouble is coming. And so I'm afraid for them. 
Not that I stay up nights and, and, and worry and fear and stuff like that, but I can just see what's coming. I think that's the same thing that Job was doing. If Job didn't know his sons were living in such a way that he, they might have cursed God, what's he offering sacrifices for? He's trying to make it work for them, and he couldn't any more than I can make it work for you or you can make it work for me. What's another lesson in the book of Job? His adult sons, if they have their own houses, I have to assume they're adults. His adult sons have to answer for themselves. We don't see God saying have, to Satan, have you considered Job and his sons, how they're all perfect? Could be that because Job was the greatest man in the East, that God had blessed him so much, as is so often the case. Many times our kids who have it much easier than us don't take the same approach in the attitude and, and commitment to God as we do. They look at us and they think, well, mom and dad have plenty. I guess it's always been that way. And they weren't around when they wasn't. They, I, Brother Hagin used to talk about this all the time. He said, you know, people look at our ministry now and they think it was always easy. He said, I wish they could have been with me on at times when things were hard. I wish they could have seen what it was like when we were building things. But see, we can only go by what we see. So we see things. We see the opportunities that we've made for our kids. I've made many opportunities for my kids that were a whole lot better than anything I ever had. And I want it to be a good thing. I want it to be a launching platform for my kids. But what they do with it is up to them. I wish I could control it. Same thing's true for Job and his sons. Job's authority didn't extend to his adult children. So what do we do? Try to put the best thing we can into them. Try to impress upon them the same need for a commitment to God and a commitment to his word that we have for ourselves. Because they'll never have a greater commitment to the word than you unless they're looking to somebody else and getting the, get, being influenced by somebody else more than they are you. That's what happened to me. I was more greatly influenced by Brother Hagin than I was my own father. Thank God. But apart from that, I'd have followed my, my own father into the things that he went into. That wouldn't have worked out well for me or you. So what does the devil do? He influences your words. Why? Because authority is exercised by words. That's the only thing the centurion knows. He says, speak the word only, my servant will be healed, because I understand authority. Now, do you remember without turning, do you remember Mark chapter 11, verse 23? I'm going to throw it up on the screen for you real quick. Jesus explaining how faith works. Please notice what Jesus said. He said, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, that means not be moved by his five physical senses, but shall believe. Notice what he says to believe. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Would you allow me to uh, interpose or substitute some words there? But shall, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that authority is expressed through words, he shall have whatsoever he saith. That his authority is expressed through words, he shall have whatsoever he saith. It's the same thing, folks. We know through, through what Jesus said. Jesus said, This man's understanding of authority, which he identifies is expressed through words, is the greatest faith I've ever found. Well, then if you have the same authority or have the same understanding about authority, the same understanding that your words are the expression of your authority, then you can have the greatest faith that he's ever found in this regard too. 
can't you? You can have the same great faith that he had. Well, sure you can. And it all comes back to one thing, and that is understanding that you were made an exact duplication in God's kind, which means what you say goes. So pick what you say very carefully. Let what you say be motivated by the knowledge of God and not the knowledge of your five physical senses. Because whenever you speak what God says, whatever you speak knowledge gained from God's word, those words will bring blessings in life every time.